0: is Robert Higgins and this is episode 11 of Screenwriting from the Trenches, a podcast about the craft and expression of screenwriting in all its forms from the perspective of writers just like you. Kay is in New York this week so we will have guest hosts in her place and this week's guest host is Jeremy Lalonde, filmmaker, podcaster, Canadian, hell of a nice guy. Um, How are you Jeremy? I'm good man, how are you? Uh, you know, uh, a little under the weather. Uh, I've done several episodes of Jeremy's podcast Black Hole Films uh, which will be linked in the show notes and so I'm glad to sort of have a chance to do a podcast swap with him. Um, but as a guest host Jeremy is here to help with today's topic slash interview of sorts how to decrease budget, budget without decreasing story with our other guest Aleem Hussain. Uh, Aleem am I saying that right? Am Hussein? I- Aleem Hussein, that's me it's great to be here I really appreciate uh,
1: you know we can talk about this stuff it's good yeah talk
0: about um thank you for being on the show um but before we get into uh aleem and the topic and his movie um we have some business to attend to in our regular segment what is screenwriting twitter talking slash fighting about this week (laughs) um of which i am sort of the subject uh of the first thing where i had sort of a I don't want to say a viral post, but, post, but su- certainly it, it, it seemed to resonate with the internet um, where a friend of mine, Rob Blackhurst, put out sort of a call to arms about my writing skills, uh, this sort of long uh, Twitter thread um, that did go pretty pretty far and wide, farther than I thought it did. Uh, if some of the responses that I got are to be believed. I uh, ended up getting followed by Elijah Wood and Jordan Peele, um, both of which were very surreal. And then I got kind of chastised, I want to say, by some uh, uh, powers that be, some gatekeepers in my DMs. Um, it was very, it, it was very odd. Um, but the one thing I, I really took away for it, from it is that people are really hungry for a Die Hard sequel. Um, because I put up, <laughs> I Rod posted this, uh, it was basically a text message exchange uh, that the two of us had. We were talking about movies uh, and, and Die Hard in particular. And I sort of pitched this Die Hard 6 uh, pitch that I've been sitting on for forever. And Rod loved the crap out of it. And just, <laughs> he posted the exchange online of like me sort of writing the parts uh, in the script and people really loved the crap out of it. And so I was sort of hearted by that. I really enjoyed the fact that people were like, no, I want to see this Die Hard movie, especially after Die Hard 5. Nobody seemed to want any more Die Hard. There was no, like nobody wanted it after that, but like People really liked uh, my Die Hard Six pitch, and so I was sort of heartened by that. So, what's
2: the because I missed that? So, what is the like? Give me, give me the the elevator pitch for Die Hard Six by well, Rock.
0: Well, see, uh, okay, uh, in Die Hard Six, uh, John McClane is being forced into retirement. Oh no! And, yeah, and the last job. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. They just they is he getting just,
2: too old for this shit. <laughs> he is getting
0: too old for this shit. Um, and the city is, uh, sort of, uh, quote unquote, honoring him. They're calling it honoring him, but it really turns into sort of the roast of John McClain. And mm. everyone who's not dead, um, shows up to sort of quote unquote pay their respects. Um, you know, like you have Al Powell, and <laughs> uh, you know like uh, some of the folks from Die Hard 3. Um, and McClane is sort of reeling from this because he's also uh, concurrently kicked out of his daughter's wedding. Because um, I wanted to bring back Bonnie Bedelia. Um, and so he's kicked out of his daughter's wedding. He's being roasted by the police. So he decides to do what he always does best, which is get drunk and loud. And he gets stupid drunk. And Al Powell tries to talk him down. And it's just like, look, man, like I know who you are. and you're a good cop. And it doesn't like, you know, it's, you know, sometimes it's trying to move on and just, like move on to the next chapter of your life. He doesn't want to hear it. And then McLean sort of stumbles out and the next morning he wakes up and he's got a bomb strapped to his wrist and he's inside of a dump truck. And we hear this voice on like a speaker and the person is talking to him and like, uh, you know, sort of telling him that they're going to make John jump through these hoops because he doesn't, once uh he he knows that john believes that he's some sort of hero and he wants to sort of help make john sort of destroy his own legacy as sort of a super cop and uh the voices you know garbled but then we find out later on that it's ellis from diehard one he's not dead he was shot in the head and he lived he woke up in a coma i mean he was in a coma and then he woke up he got this giant settlement from the nakatomi corporation and he's been watching like Bruce Willis sort of, or John McClane sort of, fashioned himself as a hero, and he's decided, after uh, McClane sort of tantrum at his retirement party, that it's time for him to pay for his sins. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole thing is sort of him making John jump through hoops, where we get to sort of comment on the other Die Hard movies by doing a rehash or reimagining of sequences from the other movies. As the cops try to figure out why McLean is being a crazy person and trying to shoot him in the face, and his allies trying to figure out why is he doing this? It doesn't seem right. His daughter's pissed off because it's taking the focus off of her wedding, and she's getting married to uh, Justin Long's character from uh, Die Hard Four. Because I just went all out, um, anyway. So. <laughs> super the family fan. reunion i love it <laughs> yeah i just i went for the whole thing man i was like no we're gonna close this shit out with a bang um and i was like i was doing the dialogue for ellis's character um and i've got to say it was i think it's i don't know i really enjoyed the dialogue i really enjoyed writing ellis as a character like he hasn't grown since like 1987 um or 1989 i think um it sounds like diehard meets saw mm-hmm. very much so
2: so now, let me just just to get this straight. So Ellis survived, uh-huh. Which, all right, I'll bite, but he <laughs> hasn't been living in like the shadows, has he? Like, it's it's not like he's been hiding and trying to pretend to be someone
0: else for 40 years. No, 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 no. He's okay. living in the Cayman Islands.
1: See, he's I there. was kind of hoping he was just in the coma the whole time so we could get the like he's also stuck in the 80s.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, do that, and I'm in. <laughs>
2: I will say though, if you just having just I spent four months in the Caymans last year, it's not far off from being stuck in the 80s.
0: Yeah. uh... So, yeah, he's been stuck and like he's just sitting on a ton of money and like, you know, revenge. And he's like, this guy shot me, this guy got me shot in the head. And they like did, you know, Time Magazine called him man of the year and shit, you know, like all this other stuff. He's like pissed. And he just, like is you know one of those angry billionaires so i feel like the diehard villains sort of reflect like where we're at as a society and of course you know if you're gonna have somebody being the villain it's got to be some sort of angry bill like angry billionaire who's just got a ton of money and is just interested in helping no one um <laughs>
2: well I'm watching the world burn
0: right yeah mm-hmm.
2: yeah okay i mean
0: so people were really uh really about this Die Hard thing. And it got, of, of the tweets, because Rod, like, uh, did a bunch of, he also released sort of a bunch of my screenplays uh, that we worked on together, which I was fine with. But um, of, of the the writing that got, like, sort of the most attention, the Die Hard pitch was the one that people were like, yes, absolutely, today, we need it. I don't know, I, I think both, like,
1: Jordan Peele following you and The Shade, they're both badges of honor, man. I think both ways, like. yeah. <laughs>
2: we don't we not live in a time where it's like people get rewarded for talking shit about the people that have kept others down for forever and that was the whole scarlett johansson lawsuit against disney and they're developing full yeah. projects together now
0: yeah i mean i mean i don't know if they you know if anybody was going to – you can't really cancel Scarlett Johansson. But, like, you know, but, like, it's just – it was just strange to me. It was like I – you know, I, I'm not sort of trying to inflate my own sense of importance. I don't matter to anyone. None of those people, you know, they operate at a level that I can only dream of. Why do you give a shit what I have to say at all in any context for any reason? But, you know, apparently I upset people. And apparently the thread upset people. And so it was just – odd to sort of deal with the backlash on that um but you know jordan peele followed me so that's cool um
2: you can dm jordan Peel, send him
0: your diehards Chris. i can um and i did just to wish him a happy thanksgiving uh so yeah there the, like sort of jump off of that the other sort of twitter business this week uh sort of breaking news is people are really upset about their notes from the Austin Film Festival, which ranged from like, this person didn't read past page one, to this, these notes are very racist. Um, <laughs> like, people were extremely upset about this. And I, I'm i sort of, I don't know, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I when I think about notes, that you pay for from a film festival from readers. I always think about walking out of Alex Royce's Dark City in a mo- like the movie theater. I was walking out and I was listening to these two people in front of me talk about the movie. And they were saying, you know what would have made that movie better? If the aliens had, had had like laser beams or laser guns. And I remember thinking, that's the stupidest thing I have ever heard of. And that's sort of how I think about like, you're going to get, there's a possibility that you're going to get something that, that is constructive and helps Mm -hmm. you out and helps you make your script better. But the other possibility the 50, 50 shot, the other side of that is that you're going to get, this should have laser beams. And so (laughs) like, that sort of keeps me from like that 50, 50 shot is what keeps me from paying for notes for different things like that. And going through those sort of contests. Like I just, I can't, because if I'm going to, I can think of a better way to spend 50 100 $120 um, besides getting that kind of feedback.
2: Yeah, I haven't had, like, I have, like, a nice core group of people that I like to send scripts to and get feedback from, uh, and I find that, like, within that i've you know exchanged stuff with myself i, I respect their tastes right they, they they don't just say nice things to me in fact they say quite mean things to me when it's appropriate <laughs> uh, but they don't do it out of like it's just like you know the the relationship is that is like the work is here i'm over here you can talk shit about the work all day long and it doesn't hurt me my feelings because i am not the work like right i've gotten to that place in my life, where I can go, you're not hurting me when you hurt when you talk shit about the work because the work can be improved. I'm damaged for life. Um, <laughs> but so 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 for me, I'm like I have that great core group. But then, you know, I do get notes if I uh, you know there's some development programs here in Canada. You get readers reports. You see those stuff back. Uh, you know, depending if I'm developing something for TV, uh, you, you get notes from the broadcasters or the or the producers, and it's just like. And so I just go, you know, what's the real note behind the note? What's the, I try yeah. to just get get behind all the bullshit and be like, what's the point of this? Is this because it's a format thing for your audience and they want this specific thing? Doesn't matter how stupid or good this note is. right? And I go, okay, that's just something that has to be done because that ticks off a box to get this thing greenlit. And so I can now either decide that I'm above doing that note, which means the project might die, or I just go fuck it, my kids
1: got to eat, and that's not going to kill. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I think the note behind the note is like, it's like, I agree with you, obviously, rather. there's obviously examples of just like idiotic notes or notes that are like, yeah, just like completely like culturally insensitive or clueless or whatever. But yeah,
0: and, some of and these notes are really funny.
1: Definitely out there, right? We can't downplay that. But, you know, to Jeremy's point, it's like, I do think, though, that I think we also know the other problem is way too many people claiming their script is perfect and misunderstood. Yes. Right. Like can, that is the other side of the equation. Generation
2: right? of privileged baby writers who are just like, how dare you give me a note? I wrote this from my heart. I don't give a fuck. Your heart has third act problems. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm with I you in that. I, I still
1: have that. Like I joke to, like, I, yeah, I teach screenwriting a little bit and I, and I joke to my students, like, even though I write the first draft, when I send it off to my similar group, like you're talking about, Jeremy. Look, I want the notes, but secretly, I'm hoping that this is the time I send the first draft and they're like, it's done, man, perfect. Like I still have that wish every time I read a draft, you know?
0: <laughs> I had a script last year and I was like um, the, it was in a weird situation where the studio had given notes that I wasn't in the room for. And it was like three pages of notes. And then they gave it to me. And then there was like a month where I had to like implement the notes. And so I put the notes into the script and I was, it took like a day just to be like, what the, f- oh, oh, and then like I put the things in the script, and I just hit, you know, send, and I sent it back to my producers, who then went back to the studio. They had a meeting, and I kept waiting, like I was waiting for like it to come back, man. And I was like, oh, what are they gonna say? And then the studio, like, apparently, sat down with them. And they were like, so, what do you think? And the and the the studio was like, no notes, we liked it, and they, <laughs> they were like, that was that's it, that that. Just you got it perfect the first time, like okay.
2: I always I, worry when that happens that it's yeah. like, ah, oh, fuck, they're gonna they're canceling it. They don't want it. <laughs> yeah, no, no no, not really
1: to, it, yeah, no. Yeah, no notes.
2: No yeah, no. It's either no the best scenario
1: or the worst scenario, right? Like, yeah, like either I you've like, won the lottery and you wrote the perfect script, or they're just like, we're done. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I was yeah, because I was like, I don't. Is that does that happen? And my producer was like, no, that never ever happens. Like, I've never had it happen to me. And they started oh, what playing... happened after that, right? Like, did it keep going? No, they optioned it. Um, they, All right. they straight up optioned <laughs> it. So it was like, okay, no, they were in it to win it. Um, they started putting money to us, so they hired a casting director, it was the thing. And so I was like, Oh shit. Um, so it was it was crazy, but I've like I now I'm sort of chasing that dragon of like, yes. of, like... oh you're fucked
2: down. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> no but... notes. No, 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 it's perfect genius.
2: I try um, like I I I'm one of those workaholic <laughs> people that just has like 15 projects on the go at any one time. And so my my goal is always like the moment I send something off for feedback from whatever party, start on something else right away. Yeah. So I kind of forget. So I'm not thinking about when are the notes coming in. And it's almost a surprise when I get the feedback within any I was like, oh shit, that came back. And then I usually read it right away if there's time, and then I go for a walk or I let it sit <laughs> for a day. You can't respond to notes the moment you get them. No, they're always going to be emotional.
1: Yeah, yeah. That- you know my my wife works in television. She's a television writer producer, and like when she's developing stuff, you know the custom there, at least in American television, is you go through the notes live on a phone call. Wow, and they want li- like the first time you're hearing them, you're responding live to them, and and. And like, you know, and like one of the things that she's really learned is like, and you know, you obviously want to be open to the notes and willing to them and say, and really signal that you're going to consider them. But also strategically, every once in a while, if you really know you're not going to do something about a note, you have to start carving your little territory right then to set expectations. But you can't fight everything. Because then they're like, oh no, difficult to develop with. Maybe we won't, you know, buy the next pilot. Like, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting process when you have to do it live.
0: Yeah, I've heard the uh, television, because I was thinking about that where there's like, you know, like you hear those horror stories about you know the studio is like no we don't like this character get rid of them and it's like you can't argue because the episode's about to go into production and it's just like now you have to eliminate like it's a whole new draft you have to eliminate this character you have to tell the actor that their character no longer exists and you've got to get it done and you've got a day. You've got to do all of this in like one day. And then you're just, there's no time to argue with the notes because the script has to get done because everybody's waiting on you to get this draft to go through that they've already done all this stuff. So you have to keep all yeah. the locations that you scouted, all of the- No, it's a the, puzzle for sure. Yeah, and you know, I'm and like, that's insane. That's just- insane. I've also seen
1: the flip side through her career, which is like that. also sometimes if you get in the groove and production is like, you know, the pressure of production is there, you can get stuff through sometimes that if they had more time to consider it <laughs> right. they would say no to but they're under the gun and so they're like oh, okay fine let them do that you know so and both <laughs> things i think happen like for sure like they kill stuff and blow stuff up at the last minute and you're like oh we just lost that we can't say we can't fight it right. and then sometimes you know some of the showrunners you work with like you see that they have mastered the art of like well, we'll just introduce this late enough in the process that it has to go through. And I think that's the art form of, you know, like, you know, to Jeremy's point, like when you're done with a national, you know, national funding versus a commercial, like there's all these different industries, right? And every one of them, because it's a different system, notes are different, the, the process is different. Like you, you can't disentangle the two, I think.
2: Yeah, when it comes to television, especially in comedy, uh, we always try to put in things, uh, fuck, I hope none of the broadcasters I work with listen to this. <laughs> Uh, we put in what I call lightning rods, which are the thing that they're 100% going to ask us to take out Yeah, because they're there to protect the thing we really want. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and every now and then
1: we get to keep the lightning rod and it's like, ah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't think we were going to get away with this, but apparently- we're, I've okay, also we're heard that, this now. The, the sort of like converse of that, of that thing too, which is um, one of the best pieces of advice I ever heard about pitching a television show was- like you know plot out all the possible questions and like you know that you might be asked about the series and then remove one from the pitch that they will definitely ask about so that then when they ask you have this super well thought out like nice. answer to it or they're like oh you know like and i was like oh that's that's true like i don't i i think i didn't come to this thinking that strategically but i was impressed by that advice <laughs> that was that's definitely yeah. how I, I
2: approached especially pitching television is i have like my whole five ten page document memorized yeah. But really, all I give is like what I would call the director's statement, which is the, the emotional pitch. Mm-hmm. And then I tee it up. And then the rest of it's all there. So I have even more of those little paragraphs. Yeah. So as soon as I go, what's the, the characters, Oh, it's this person, that person. And then just let let the conversation drift the way they want it. It becomes more of a conversation. Yeah. The other thing is, is that if I get the sense that they don't like an aspect of it, I can change that shit on the fly.
1: Right, right. Yeah, you didn't just talk to them for 10 minutes about a thing they don't like. You're sort of like pivoting it. Yeah, I get it.
0: Yeah, so I also do I,
2: always open up every conversation with uh, when I'm either like a production company or a broadcaster, just saying, Hey, what so, what are you guys looking on your shopping list? What do you guys have in development? What are you looking for? So then, wait, as I'm pitching, I can start tweaking it on the fly.
0: Yeah, I always write like what sort of amounts to is like, um, whenever people have asked for a pitch for me, I always start with sort of like, like a almost like a comedy routine, it's like a joke or like an anecdote that you spin into something that's about the show just so you can sort of get into that um and sort of see if you can make people laugh um that way and then you're putting pieces of the show sort of in your your like your thing that way i don't necessarily have to go through like if they want that sort of thing later if you've got like detailed things like after but for me it's all about getting that that sort of like jokey monologue going and stuff like that that way I can memorize that and go through that and then people like you know want to work with you or they like you as a person and stuff like that because that's what I really want them to do is like me <laughs> well, I like, like love hate
1: relationship with that opening where I feel like I agree with you like I think you know the most ep- effective part like I'm doing a pitch right now for a tv thing and I do think that the most effective part is like I have a good personal inspiration story which is true it's not manufactured like it's very genuine um, and it's why I'm passionate to, tell, to do the show, but I also feel like I think we live in this really weird world where, like, the bar for, like, what makes a sellable idea is prove to us you are the only human being in existence who can yeah. write this thing, always have a link to your biography, and, like, I get why that's interesting <laughs> sometimes, but I'm also like, we're creating fiction here, you know, right. like, like, I do think there should be space for I have an inspired idea. And like, I mean, I, I definitely know writers who like feel compelled to manufacture fake autobiographical inspiration points, because that's the expected way into every idea. And that's well, been able to write about Middle
2: Earth. They'd be like, we need an actual Hobbit to tell the story. Like you're clearly <laughs> in England. It's like, how do you how do you relate to Middle Earth? I'm sorry, you can't, we're going to get someone else.
0: Yeah, why why do you why are you the best person to tell this story? Cuz it's my story, jackass. Like that's wrote, that's why. I they came got up high with shit, it. And it came to me one day. And that's, that's... cuz I wrote it, asshole. It's my story. That's why. God damn it. Like you no, you can't. You can't because you're right. Like um uh, you know what people want is that that sort of personal connection to it. And that's hard, that especially gets harder when, you know, like, you know, not to sort of jump on that grenade, but like if you're writing something that has a female protagonist, and you're trying to examine it, and there you are as a male storyteller, and they're like, so what makes you the right person to tell this story? And you're like, oh, here we go. Um, you know. And I feel like
1: that's work that you, that as a writer is important to do, right? Yeah. Uh, like, you know, to, to figure out your way into any material. And I think it's great, you know, I think we'd all probably say it's good to check yourself for a second and be like, all right, is this a story for me to tell? And, and yeah. you know, and do I know how to tell it? Um, but to me, I feel like, I, I think it's we live in this bonkers world where everything has to be based on a pre property and somehow everything has to be personally connected to the writers. You know? <laughs> 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 it's
2: also this weird time where it was like, you know, five, ten years ago, there was all this criticism that was there, oh, there's not enough strong female characters or characters that represent this or this or that. Now there are, but it's like, oh, but who are they written by? Because it doesn't count if they're, they weren't written by the right...
1: And I don't know, I mean, I, I don't know if it doesn't count, but I, I hear you, but I, I do think like, I think the, 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 the reason that that's coming up though, right. Is I think there is some, there are some examples of like how that does go wrong. Yeah,
2: It often goes more wrong more than it's right. But it's also one of those things where it's just like, cause I've always written more female leads than I've ever written male. Right. i am saying but now it's the kind of thing where it's like, well, it's like, maybe you should write more male characters because you're a male. It's like, well, what the, like, I mean, that's never been my thing
0: right Mm -hmm.
2: you know and it's just like why do i it's like can we all each be judged
0: individually as opposed to as groups of people right exactly and i like you know to sort of take it i don't know how you feel about it lean but like i don't have somebody like coming like telling sort of a quote unquote a black story but the problem is is that you know who's not black but the problem is that you know, and sort of that, you know, that identity politics thing. Like, I feel like, like there's also a way to do it. Like the way that, um, I'm kept blanking on his name now. Um, the guy who did Watchmen. Um, Damon Lindelof. Yeah, Lindelof. The way he did the, the Watchmen television show was absolutely brilliant. And he got a bunch of people of color, like put him around them and like sort of let them challenge his ideas and things like that. But right. I'll tell you what, like, I'm not mad at the fact that he got to tell, he was the, one of the first people, if not the first person to explore the Tulsa race riot on yeah. television. And that was so important because people were like, this was a thing. And like, no, like, I agree. I mean, I,
1: I think for me, like, I actually think of it more as an employment opportunity issue, right? Like, I think the ones that flat, I agree with you, Jeremy, too. It's like, I think like, there's obviously examples of People who are doing the work and like it's like if we all are only reduced to the narrowest thing we can write, that's also a problem. Right. For me, I think what comes up is the is issues of like, especially when we're not talking about like ideas that a writer themselves generated and bring something, but when we're talking about open assignments yeah. or, you know, you know, cinematic universes where people get to sort of, you know, do films when there are, you know, clearly identity-based versions of those mm-hmm. and they have an open call and who they settle on is far afield from like what the core demographic of the film is. That's where I think my biggest question comes up, even just on a, little, a level of like employment fairness, you know, like, like here was an opportunity, like why didn't that go to, you know? like? And obviously I think we can think of examples where, you know you know, someone outside of that did it and they were great. But I think to me, like, I really do think about that question, whereas like, you know, I mean, I think, you know, when you when you look at like Tangerine with Sean, Sean Baker like you know like uh, there's a film he generated that film he's right. not in that identity group right like and yet I feel like he came to it with real authenticity and I for the most part I think he's supported by that community in making that film right and and, yeah. and you know and and I think like there are definitely and that's I think that's good that that exists right that that, that, that can happen as well To me, like, yeah, it's more like when we choose, like, you know, okay, here's the open writing assignment on fill-in-the-blank, and, you know, like, all the finalists are, you know, know, are, are, you know, are not, you know, from that community, I start to worry, right? It's like, yeah, we should be considering the options here, you know?
0: Yeah, Yeah, the other thing that sort of, well, not to sort of take it in the other direction, but, like, the other thing I feel like is that there's there seems to be when you, when they do go for like ethnic groups, like there seems to be only certain kinds of stories that they're willing to tell. And that really drives me crazy. Cause I'm constantly being told that I write horror movies when I write about black people. And I'm just like, no, this is, this is just like the day to day, dude. Like I, I it's, it's, it's Tuesday. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's my just my parents, they w- sat down and watched um, uh, get out mm-hmm. and they literally were, like, thrown by the speculative ending because they had picked up on none of the horror cues. They were just like, wow, this is a pretty good drama about race relations in America. You know, like, like, they're not horror <laughs> film fans, so they weren't yeah. viewing it in a drama. And so at the end, they were like, it was a great movie about race relations in America until the weird sci-fi plot twist. You know? Like, yeah. <laughs> they, were just, they just didn't, because they don't see horror films, none of the, like, oh, you know, here's a classic, you know, we're going into the empty house, or here's a classic foreboding... That all went over their head, and they read it a hundred percent as you know, t- t- portrayal of America. <laughs>
0: well, like that's that's the thing that I sort of run in a lot was like the the experience of being a person of color in America is sometimes so surreal that it sort of defies, um, like satire. Like it, it goes it because it's too real. It's 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 one of those things like you can't put a joke on it. Like you know you you look at something like any sort of the racial incidents that that happened like that have happened over the like if you look at the amy cooper that this is like a baseline kind of thing where it's just like you had a woman who called nine one one and was like there was a black man harassed because he wanted to put her or like a leash on her dog you know what i mean like if you if you put that up on screen people were like is this a satire like is this it's like, is somebody doing this as a joke? It's no, set this in is... a world. We're in We're... Central Park. You know, right. Like... <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're looking at that situation. You're like, this feels like a joke. This feels like it was so on the nose. Like, you couldn't, you can't, you can't parody that. You cannot parody it because it's already a parody of real life. And so sometimes when you you write things and that sort of thing. People are like, I don't, I don't get this. I don't understand what this is. Because they're, they're looking at something that should be on, like, on its face. It should be parody. It should not be real life. But it is real life. So you have to present it as it is. You have to play it yeah. dead straight. I saw Armando Iannucci
1: do an interview where he was like, we finished Veep just in time. Because then the
0: world <laughs> so far surpassed me, I would have had nowhere to go. Right? <laughs> yeah, you can't write that stuff. Like you're looking at January 6th, and you're like, "Whoa!" Like, like January 6th, as a, as, a, as a, if you look at it from a from a from a satirist's spin point. If you're thinking about a group of people who bring a Confederate flag into the capital of the United States, talking about an election that got stolen, you're like. Oh God, that's so much irony! I can't even. I don't even know where to start. You know, what we I mean? would have gotten notes on that pitch, by the <laughs> way. <laughs> They've
1: been like, "Wait, so half of them sort of showed up just because of a TikTok, and
0: um, you know, just, like, like the whole thing would have been right. like, like it's too much yeah. of a parody. Like, yeah. you can't. So, like, irony is dead. So it's like you know, that's sort of the other thing, like where you get where you're writing something from that sort of personal colors like perspective, and it seems like surreal. But you're like, no, I'm just, this is just a dead straight. I'm just playing this dead straight. Like, I'm not, I'm not making anything up. It's just putting it out there. It's just like, you get that note where you're just like, well, this is execution dependent.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: like, you're, okay, thank you for, okay. Everything is execution. Part
1: like, do we want to watch things that are not execution dependent? <laughs> <I'm just laughs> like, like, what does that say? <laughs> like... <laughs>
2: I've seen some shows that are not execution dependent.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have too. All right, fellas, uh, let's uh, sort of move on to our our uh, sort of our main topic: uh, how to how to decrease budget without decreasing story. Sort of emblematic of that, of course, is a movie uh, "After We Leave," um, which I had the pleasure of watching this week. Even though IMDb TV tried to ruin it for me with commercials, um,
1: oh my god! I know we shifted off to from Amazon to IMDb TV, but we're on Paramount
0: Plus now, so at least there's some place on the internet that can be watched without commercials. Fantastic! <laughs> um, but yeah, I I really enjoyed the film. For thirty thousand dollars, you've done something that that is really noteworthy. Like I like you know, thank you. The sometimes you get these. You know, like people were like, he made a movie for $2. And then you look at the movie and you're like, well, I can see why it was like, you know what I mean? <laughs> but like, I'm did looking- a go? yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you paid too much, um, you know, but I was looking at your movie and I was like, I don't know how. He got away with that. Uh there they're, uh I know for at least there like you I've seen other interviews you where they talk about the DMV sort of sequence or the, the Visa sequence where you sort of stole uh the DMV. Like there because I was looking at this and I was like, man, that looks I don't know how I did that. I don't and know. I walked into the DMV <laughs> and I got kicked out in 12 minutes, but we filmed what we needed in those 12 minutes. Hey man, <laughs> however, you gotta do it. Um and I just, like, there's there's a lot of, you're doing, from a writer's uh, standpoint, you're doing a lot in, because um, there's definitely sort of that trope of, like, person comes back and how they left, they sort of left everyone in the lurch. And so mm-hmm. you have to deal with those relationships. Yeah. And you're doing a lot of work with those characters um, that is just sort of left in the background without overwhelming people with exposition. Where you give a lot of backstory in the the in, the inference, um, and I, I'm just wondering how, like, you was, what was the tightrope walk on that? First of all, you know what's interesting about that particular
1: tightrope walk, I think, is that in the moment of doing it, I think I was less aware of like how how strong and in some ways divisive a choice that is and it was more my natural instinct like I think that one of the things at the time and just the films I was watching and the films that I really some of the films I deeply love are about unpacking the mystery of human beings you know and mm. and and they're also about like seeing things unfold both world building and character development in a way that is like not as if it's not made for the movie like I think at the time like I like all kinds of movies but like in this particular film like yeah I was interested in the idea of you know you know how when you get to a day with friends and you talk with your friends you don't do expositional speaking a lot of the time right like you you you, you use fewer fewer proper nouns you reference things you know in a gesture or an eye roll like we're not we don't speak for the benefit of an audience and at the time I was just curious like I really like neorealist films and I really like, you know, like verite films. And I was like, I want to do that in sci-fi. And I think, I also think we can trust the audience, you know and that not everyone likes it. And I'm actually okay with that. But some people I think really enjoy the thing you're talking about, which is like unpacking. What did that mean? Right. Or what does that imply? And like, I think the film is slow paced but in my mind it was like, it's what really is holding the tension is not the rapid acceleration of the plot but it's like, I hope for the right kind of viewer you're getting these breadcrumbs about people, and that's what I was hoping to build the film
0: on you know and yeah and like yeah there's a like the scene with Morgan's wife um, is like she's like so pissed uh, she just she wants him out and she's so mad at him and the, like that sort of that's the sort of emblematic of of, of oh, definitely you. like the sort of what I'm talking about It was so good because I was just like, man she's mad. like I want to know. What So I'm hanging on her every word of like what she's going to reveal about, because Morgan is was pissed, but it's like it's your friend who's mad, yeah. like it's you did a thing, but like it's still that's your friend, or like what seemed to be what was probably his best friend it seemed like, yeah. like, you know, that's the person that you go to, you know who's going to take you in no matter what but his wife is like what the what yeah oh man and no i think that- you learn about characters and you see different characters how they react
1: to the same situation right that's yeah. totally revealing right it's an old screenwriting trick and like i was thinking about something like that for sure i also just wanted those char- i feel like to me and again I-, I was in a particularly i think like anti-authoritarian move when i wrote it which is like <laughs> i feel like in so many hollywood movies the supporting characters they're they're like designed to just further the plot and the protagonist's character arc like they're like automatons there to service the main character right and like yeah with her like i want her to be like she doesn't even want to be in the movie right like she's she's mad enough at him she doesn't want to be part of his story right and like to me that felt like what real relationships are like you know not everyone is in your story you're bumping up against them but they have their own thing you know well
0: okay the next thing I want, and this is this is really what I, because I I've, I I've, I've listened to a bunch of interviews with you, and I know that you were uh, sort of allowed the the improv uh, yeah. of actors on set, but and you also worked on the movie for what was it seven years? Yes, yeah, a little too uh, long. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So I'm like sort of cringing at the idea of like like you're keeping this. Did the script change a lot over those seven years? Like that. That would drive yeah. me insane. I mean,
1: the, the the seven years is obviously much longer than I hoped. But like like my my initial goal was like, we're gonna shoot just on nights and weekends. Um, and and one of the reasons to do that was not just like a budget thing, it was the idea of I wanted to work around the schedules of people who had day jobs and who worked other gigs, my cinematographer was shooting stuff, my actor, you know, like all that sort of stuff. But also like I wanted to create these little windows where We weren't on a schedule. You know, one of the things I hate about being in production when it's like really crunched is like, you're always just making those safe choices, right? Like, okay, well, if we blow this shot, you know, then the whole schedule falls apart, the budget falls apart. And so, yeah, I wanted to have room for it to evolve. uh, And we wanted to improv and we wanted to be able to say, you know what? That day didn't work. That four hours, that afternoon didn't work. Let's go do it again. But even at the start, I knew it would be a mistake to just be like, let's make it up as we go along. Right. So yeah, I had written a sort of pretty detailed outline, actually, to begin. In the beginning, it was just an outline. And at first, I thought maybe I would just use the outline. But I would say at about a month or two into the shooting, I realized, first of all, a couple of scenes at different points just really came to me that I wanted to be a certain way. Right. And then some of my actors said, hey, look, I'm all for improving, but I'd love to improv off of a script. Like, can we start with a scene and then we can spin from there? And so I wrote, wrote in certain key scenes. The beginning of the movie and the end of the movie never changed. They were, that was the, the beginning and the end. The middle changed both in shooting and then in editing. I sort of rewrote that path from the beginning to the end, partially because of the improving, partially because just in editing, I changed some pacing stuff. Um, but for sure, like, The actors and my cinematographer, Julie Kirkwood, like Brian Silverman, the lead, and Julie, the DP, they really helped me shape that middle because we were out there just discovering moments. You know, we would go out and just see a cool place and think about a moment that Jack could go through there, like, and that shaped the middle of the film for sure.
0: Well, uh, here's sort of a question for you both. Like, what is your relation to, like, improv I know Jeremy, you do a lot of it with comedy and Alem. This is a sci-fi, which is not something that most people would assume that you're doing like that you would do like improv, like sort of Mark Duplass style. Um I'm I'm I am not an improv person. I I do I can't. I literally cannot. And so when I when I you hear love these, your fucking words too much, Rob. I do. I <laughs> god damn it. Like, you know, I worked really hard on those words that say it fucking words. Um, but no, like I i oh man i cannot i come from that sort of like mammoth sorkin sort of like you know school of of screenwriting and so for me like i i can't so i could you guys sort of like walk me through that i mean i'm curious to hear what jeremy say
1: about comedy like for me the thing that i value in drama from improv Mm -hmm. is less like the you know it's not the discovery of like the better joke or whatever which i think probably is part of it but like for me like what i really value it is like I made so many films where I saw like, and this is not the fault of the actor. It's like my shortcomings as a director. I saw the actor deliver the line I wrote, but it wasn't that great. And like in the end, like putting the line I wrote in the movie, was not that great. It just didn't work for me. But I also realized that so frequently, like when, they, when an actor comes to you and wants to change the line, the line is actually not the problem. It's just like finding what the scene's really about. And so oftentimes I would find, we would improv and then we would run the scene that I wrote you know, but the improv had allowed them to find their way in. And then oftentimes half the lines I wrote would be in the scene, you know, because of, by improv they had found it. and So it was really a partially a rehearsal, finding motivation, getting authentic performance. Um, but I will say the, the, one, the one time I'm always excited to depart from the script is the sort of age old advice to the actor, which is like, if you feel something, if in the middle of the scene, you just find welling up from inside of you an intense desire to say this or to do this, you should do that. Because if we capture that on camera where we see the thought actually form behind the eyes and then happen,
0: yeah. those
1: are the moments we love. And look, obviously great actors who are trained can do those moments and not depart from the script by a, by a syllable, right? They can do that. We see it in Mammon and Sorkin. But I just find like, I, I don't want to ever like have them be like, I have an instinct to do this, but the script says that. I'm just like always trying to avoid that, that moment. That's what I don't want to happen. You know, I'd rather have that. But Jeremy, what do you, you're more on the comments. What, what do you, how do you think about improv?
2: Yeah. I mean, I've done both. Like I just did a movie that hasn't come out yet last year. That was a drama. Oh, that's cool. Completely improvised. So it was a very. And it's beautiful.
1: Thing. It's gorgeous. Oh, I can't wait to see it. And so did you go into the scenes? Do you have like, you know, where we come in, where we exit, even that, or were you completely open or how did you do that? We How we did that
2: one was I had done an outline for myself that nobody else got to see.
1: Same here. I didn't show my outline to many people.
2: (laughs) We shot in (laughs) chronological order. So the actors only knew what was happening the moment they entered the scene. Wow. So they didn't know anything else other than we'd start a scene and be like, this is what you want. This is what you want. Then we'd do a take. And then after, I'd talk to them both individually and be like, actually, you want this now. And I might mm. change things up. So every take, the other actor didn't know what the other actor was yeah, going to come yeah. in with and what was going to change. So it was always like throwing them off and keeping them up. But they loved it. And like you said, like you get, like when you watch an actor that doesn't know what's going to happen in the scene, they have no choice but to be present. You know? They gotta not listen. Waiting. They
1: gotta listen. They gotta
2: listen. Yeah, yeah, they gotta yeah. gotta listen. They don't know. They're not waiting for their turn to speak because they don't know. They have to be compelled to speak. It's like being, it's like Quakers,
1: you know? Yeah. I found that even when I had the script, because everyone knew that I'd given people permission to deviate from the script, that feeling of like, well, I better be listening because I don't know when he's going to suddenly veer off, you know, it kept them engaged. I agree. And I just create, whether it's drama or comedy, I I try to
2: cultivate an atmosphere on set where we're just playing and discovering stuff. And so the script is there, but I, it was a blank piece of paper before I got to it, mm-hmm. so why can't it continue to evolve and change? And I'm a wordsmith word whore too, like Rob, yeah. but I also go, <laughs> those, those words didn't exist before I got there, so why yeah. can't they? And I rewrote them a couple times anyway. Like, it's just, I'm going to decide whether or not I use it, so it's still part of the writing process. I'm just allowing someone else to riff.
1: You know? Yeah, it's, no, I just I think the writing like, doesn't end space, when you're on set. That space for them to sort of be able to to sort of play and explore and find and make it their own. And like, and oftentimes, like one of the reasons that I do most of the time still share the general plan is that I find that they do work that gets me to where I needed to go differently and better than what I originally thought, you know? Like, like and that they're like, oh yeah, I can get you. I see what you're doing there. I think I'll go, I'll go about it this way, but I'll get you to that point. Right. Um, and I definitely, you probably have to like, at certain key scenes, like you need to give that, right? Like at certain key points you need, like you need to get someplace. But other times, I'm actually fascinated to hear that you, a lot of times, were not even, like, you were really opening it up. That's a pretty cool way to work. Um, yeah, and then sometimes yeah. just throwing different stuff at, like, the actors and just... Uh, I, can't, I
2: can't give you a specific because you haven't seen the scenes, but just going, you know, she said this to you in this scene. Why did you let her get away with that? Oh, yeah, all the time. And I'm like, now let's go. And then you see the wheel spinning, I'm like, let's go. Yeah. i like, don't let her get that out. And I tell, you know, it, it's that old... I remember watching this great old... Um, uh acting class with i think it it was uh michael kane uh teaching like the basic of how you direct actors he's like you tell one actor to sit down in the chair at some point in the scene and you tell the other actor don't let them sit down in the chair and it's as simple as that yeah right so you automatically you just have to know that it's like when there's two people in a scene or three people in a scene or four people in a scene if they don't all want different things
1: You've got a boring scene. Yeah, and I think that's that's actually related to the other point that I was talking about, which is like I do feel like, and like I would never claim to be perfect at this, but like I do think that there's a real. It's so easy to fall into the temptation of having your supporting characters just service the main character's journey. Yeah, you know, like we know no, we're going to be writing have to an agenda. Yeah, exactly, for sure. And I really wanted to bring that. Like one of the reasons I was excited to do that in sci-fi is that I feel like as of late, I would argue so much of our sci-fi speculative concepts like our films they really don't have that kind of like sense of like there's a lot of different points of view here and like you know this who knows where this plot could go and like you know like like, like i feel like they're very they're some of them are even very good but they're very regimented they're like you know they're on the rails we'll go on this arc yeah and yeah. i like the idea you know i don't think i'm as as funny as the d brothers but like i absolutely was thinking like Yeah, like, could you make Puffy Chair the sci-fi movie? You know, like, I wanted to know if that was possible um, and and explore that. Yeah, that's just it. It's like, if if, if characters, especially major characters or even, like,
2: large supporting characters, if they don't have different point of views, why are they in the script? You know, for me, I always approach that, especially even from comedy, approaching doing, I started off doing more ensemble stuff, and it was like, and literally, I invented a character because I wanted to be able to say this in the story, mm-hmm. and then I built the characters around those different yeah. arguments, right? Yeah. So I'm curious, just because you know the topic is you know making shit look good with nothing. Yeah. Uh, when you when you approach your projects, and this is a good question for both of you, um, do you kind of like? And because I teach like a, a workshop boot camp with with filmmakers too, and I also teach a directing course at a college here in Toronto. And one of the things that I tell people when they're brainstorming like their projects is you brainstorm all the themes, all the ideas, all the stories, but I have a separate list of all the shit you have access to. Yeah. Like locations, cool props, vehicles, whatever it is, like make that list too and go, oh, is there a way to marry the two? Because that's the kind of thing
1: that's going to create production value. You are literally reading
0: my mind right now. That was the next question I was going to ask. That was (laughs) literally.
1: I, you know, I, I have found that for me personally, yeah, I, I can't actually brainstorm just out of the constraints. And so yeah, what I tend to do is like I will write down you know the 10 ideas on my mind and I'll write up the 10 different ways you could write those ideas and only after just letting that be unfettered, like unconstrained, then though I do ask very hard questions about all right, but which of these could I do? And I personally I read about this a little bit in the no film school article like I I'm actually very skeptical. I think as independent filmmakers, and I, I would put myself in this camp, like this is an accusation I would apply to myself as well. I'm not just throwing shade. Like I think too often we convince ourselves that our cute low budget trick to achieve a high budget look works when it doesn't, <laughs> you know? Like I've seen a lot of interviews like, oh yeah. And so like, you know you, you could feel like that helicopter was outside because it's just the sound of the helicopter, you know? Or like, like, and like, I'm like, we live in a world where audiences see so much spectacle that i do feel like sometimes and we think we've like implied something off screen or like done it cleverly they're just reading it as a subpar version of that big thing so i think beyond just like constraining my budget i actually think a lot about which of these things uh is like is at least close to its strongest version in the way i can achieve it you know and so like right now like look i my brother's a visual effects artist he could do some things for me you know right off the bat he told me on your budget with our time i cannot do a computer generated character and so like there was no way i was going to do a cg character in this sci-fi movie you know like even with the low budget ways you can do it i was like i i don't you know i'm not i don't know if i wanted it but I, i just decided like i can't do it well enough to do it so i'm actually partially like avoiding those comparisons and that's honestly one of the reasons that the whole movie is not in the vernacular of hollywood either like like i was very much trying to make it you know, consciously the cinematography is gritty, you know, the style, like I didn't want to be compared to that. I, I think there are people who have done it, but I think most of the time when you read a blog from an independent filmmaker and they're like, look how I took $5,000 and made a thing look as good as the Avengers. Right. You watch it and you're like, it's not as good as the Avengers. And, but, and, 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 and I think the bigger shame is, but you have you have some skill and I actually think you would have been better off directing that skill someplace where they wouldn't invite the comparison.
0: Right. Yeah. Uh, for me, I definitely I, I'm sort of like a like I get like a beautiful mind about it. Like for me, I like to I I call it like what what is my box, you know? And I sort of take uh like everything that I have and I put it in the box. And the amount of stuff that I have, like decides the size of the box. Like, is this a thousand dollar box? Is this a five thousand dollar box? And so for me, like the amount of things that I can. Put into it sort of determine the story be like okay so i have this these are now all the things this is the size of my box and then so my story is can only fit into this and then i sort of like not necessarily mad lib style but i'm i my thing is to find inappropriate ways to do things with things that people like if i have a convenience store um you know let me have uh you know what will probably like can i do like what borders on like a sex scene in here or can i like what can i do in this location that people will not expect me to do so if you have like these you know sort of uh, like low budget constraints what is a way that you can circumvent that by doing something that people don't expect and that yeah yeah, i mean think about
1: how you know i know it's an old example but like it's maybe that's the the og example of this but like you know, Robert Rodriguez takes that guitar case yes. and makes it an iconic piece of cinema, right? He had a guitar case. That's what he had, right? He had right. a case with a guitar in it. And he the, the thing he did with it was so different that it literally became, you know, it, it's probably in the Academy Museum right now. It's like, like it became a thing, right? You know, right. And yeah, I think it's the same thing with your convenience stores. Like, I, I do think there's something special about doing that.
0: Yeah, you know, and so for me, like, that's, that's what I, you know, uh, you know, especially since I'm, you know, how to make a movie for $1,000. You know, I feel like that's sort of how you can do things like that. And then it makes something that people want to see. Cause if they're looking at something and they're expecting, cause you sort of hit the nail on the head, um, Aleem, where you, people are looking at things that you're doing. And if you sort of imply that there's a helicopter here, people can feel you cheating. Um, and so You know, people are savvy enough. They've seen enough movies. They know that normally, you know, if you have a certain amount of budget, you can afford a helicopter. There is no helicopter, so you can't afford one. So, like, you know, like... And I think that's
1: more true now than ever. Like, I think, like, you know, when I look back at film history, you know, when there were fewer limited viewing options, Mm -hmm. that was why, like, those campy... One of the reasons campy sci-fi movies are, like, low-budget horror... Like, the low-budget imitations of big stuff, I think they had a different space in the marketplace because, literally... You could have watched the, th- the three spectacle movies Hollywood had released. There were no others to watch in theaters then. And then here come these low budget guys. And obviously they were also doing interesting political things and they were being more extreme, but like the space they occupy was partially because there weren't other ex- big stuff. And now the real, you know, the cold, you know, hard truth is uh, just if I subscribed to Netflix alone, the number of hours of completely big budget, competently produced content out there is endless, right? And so, yeah, I think there's, that space has changed. Like, the reason, I think, even for us to make independent films has changed, I think.
2: Yeah, and the trick has always been, for me, is like the idea of, like, make your budget look 10 times higher than it was, but not a 1,000 times higher. And that's when you get into the problem with the Avengers thing, because it's like, there's a difference between, you know, you look at something like Swingers, right? Like, they shot, yes. they shot in real parties. They shot in real things. They didn't try to make it look like a $20 million movie. <laughs> they tried to make it look like a $5 million movie, even yes. though they only had, like, a half million or i think that's great for- i love
1: that jeremy yeah just like only reached like the 10 times the that's a good point i like that a lot. well just, just <laughs> try to
2: stay try to make it look like one step higher as opposed because it's going to be obvious that you don't like you can't like you know uh we just did a thing where it's like i don't want to be like that scene where it's like well there should clearly be a thousand extras here. yes yes mm-hmm. we have five and that looks stupid <laughs> So why would there only be you know this many Right, yeah, so right. it's got to it's got to be justified story wise. Otherwise, like you said, audiences are savvy. They go, why that looks like that looks cheap. They, and yeah.
1: beyond just the idea of like the cheating and it looking cheap, I also think there's a second thing, which is, uh, you know, I mean, I I have this desire to be putting something out into the world that like adds to the conversation. And there are these moments when I look at the big budget films, when I see the very best of them, I think they're doing what they want to do very well. Um, and I like, I think I personally don't, I don't feel a burning desire to just have to work in this field. Like I'm like, I want to add my thing, you know? And I think one of the other reasons to work independently and to do this stuff differently is because you, you know, look, you won't maybe get, get the same audience, but you're adding something, some other new kind of thing people can watch, you know? And I'm not saying like everyone has to make the most strikingly original stuff in the world, but just like I think, you know, I, I, I don't know why me, I'm just burned out on filmmaking blogs, but I feel like there's so much emphasis about like how to exactly mimic or exactly achieve a certain look or a certain style. And I'm like, those things are already being done. Yeah, You know, like I, I really honestly, when I, you know, speaking of students, I'm sure you find it too, Jeremy, like so many times my favorite film in a semester or in a workshop is a somewhat imperfectly made, but strikingly like with a striking artistic voice film. You yeah. know, where I'm like, oh yeah, that was an interesting idea.
2: You know, like, wow. I haven't yeah. seen before. And that's what I, I teach my students too, or I just try to push myself. I'm like, all these things, like, how like, I, I always use that phrase too. How are we adding to the conversation? Because these things are have already been done. How do we make sure yeah. we're not copying them? Or also, you know, we kind of mocked it earlier in the conversation, but to that point, it's like,
1: what's the version that only you could tell? Because I use that phrase every time. What is the version only you would make? You know, like, yeah, you would write, you would make, like, that's what you want to make.
0: You guys want to hone in on something specific like that's what I sort of and this is going to be I'm going to do a podcast topic on this but I find that even for me like the way that I get through a script is because I've got an axe to grind. And so for me you've got to find your axe to grind in terms of what you want to put up on screen like there's got to be something specific. And if, you know, it's got to be something that, that we haven't seen or, and there's ways to do that because I, you know, people are like, we've seen everything. I'm like, no, we haven't. There are, there are definite perspectives that people have not seen. There are relationships that people have not seen. There are dynamics that people have not seen. You got to take that shit that's in your head and you've got to put it out there.
1: And even like storytelling styles, right? Yeah. Like I, 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 one of the things I say to my students too, is like, was you know it's great to watch movies that you like that inspired you in the mm-hmm. genre you want to work in. But I the biggest thing I say is like, if you know you want to work in a genre, even if you don't, like what is a movie that pissed you off? <laughs> like, like what movie you were upset about how that ended? You didn't like their approach yep. to character. You thought the way they did plot was like 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 great. Then write your your rebuttal. Yeah. To that movie, you know. <laughs> don't remake
2: a movie you love. Remake a movie you hate. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant.
1: Yeah, that's a t-shirt right there. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well Rob and I have had it. Rob and I have riffed on movies we've watched
0: together, and I'm like, this is this is what they should have done. We went, we right? This. We did a whole podcast where we did that, where we <laughs> like we reinvented made in heaven. We do- oh man, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, because I, I I love that movie. Um I don't know if you've ever seen it. This 1987 Timothy Hutton movie, and it's it's objectively it, terrible. It's objectively okay. terrible. But I love it's it. It's a good idea. Right, it's a great idea. Yeah. You know, it's about this guy who like falls in love with this woman in heaven and then she gets sent to earth and so he ah. goes down to earth to be with her, but they can't put them together. He has to find her. And okay. so like he spends 30 some odd he doesn't right, get... yeah yeah yeah. just like wandering the earth trying to figure It's like a love story, you know what I mean? It's a great idea about the idea of soulmates, but it's terribly made. It's so bad. And it's just and I, you know, you know, Jeremy and I sort of like ripped on that because we just wanted to do our own version of that. We were just so <laughs> passionate about like, like, why did they do this? Why? Why are these computers? You know, like Apple computers, <laughs> they're supposed to be in heaven. Why is heaven using Apple computers? You know, what <laughs> <I mean? laughs> why are they using Apple twos? You know what I mean? Like, what is what is this? Yeah. Why are the children in heaven going to school? Yeah. Um, I, I have a weird approach now
2: that I take to like. It, it's always starts with the idea, of course, right? I'm like, yeah. what's the story I want to tell? What's the world I want to get into? And then I try as quickly as possible to figure out what's the genre? What's the medium? Is it TV? Is it, is it mm-hmm. feature? Is it like, what's the what's the scope of this? And then I try to take a very elevator pitch to like different people. I think I could partner with and just try to get a sense of their thoughts on the marketplace of it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then from there, I go, what's the budget? What's the most budget I can get for this thing? And then I'll write to that.
0: Oh, brilliant.
2: Most just writing the thing and then trying mm-hmm. to chase it later.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
2: then I usually already have a partner that's excited about it and interested about it. And I've been lucky enough that the last two or three projects, that's exactly how I've, I've situated them. And it's kind of worked out. But it also, like as I'm writing, I'm also kind of like curbing my own expectations and going, I know this is going to be a $2 million thing, or this is going to be a quarter million dollar thing, or it's Mm -hmm. going to be, I'm making this on my credit card kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I can kind of keep my expectations in check and not waste my time writing the, you know, Chris Pratt version. And then (laughs) then having to like bring it down. I'm like, let me aim for that. And that's, and there's, and there's no shame in that either because then I also have to go, oh, you know what? Actually, I don't think this is worth doing because if you don't think there's an audience that will go Definitely. for this at this budget, maybe it's not the right thing or I need to come back to it later.
1: Which you have to be honest about, right? But I agree. I mean, I think there is like this silver lining of some of these constraints. This is obviously old advice, but like I do think there have been times which when I realized, yeah, I couldn't do the version of that scene that has evolved the thousand extras. And I, I now know enough to not try to fake it with only 10 extras. yeah what it does push you to do is be like well what is the scene really about um yeah. and like and sometimes i get to the you know what i don't have a better version which probably means this idea is starting to feel like maybe it can't be done at this level but other times you just completely have a new idea and i think that and that has the potential to be a different way to do it you know that, that we have we've seen less often you know or that is more unique you know and so i think uh, i i try to stay open to both like making sure that i don't just tell myself it works sometimes you have to put certain ideas aside But then sometimes it really just pushes you to be creative yeah we had a so i just shot this movie
2: last year uh that hasn't another it's not the one that the drama it's a comedy uh and it's so we had this big uh it's about a family kind of dealing with the death of the patriarch uh and it's a very disgruntled family against Mm -hmm. each other and so we have this funeral scene and we have a big beautiful space to shoot it in and of course you know we can't afford as many extras as it would take to fill that thing right yeah, and they were, and we were in prep and they're talking about it. So we can probably have twenty, and if we do this and we do that, and I was like, well, yeah, I want yeah. to see the fucking room because so, the because the family is supposed to be rich, right? Yeah, and I was like, you know what? I don't want any extras for the scene. Ah, uh, like, what do you mean? Like, nobody showed up to the funeral. yeah. Nobody showed up to the funeral. I'm like, that's gonna say so much more. Yeah, and yeah. if you have five people, it looks like we're low budget. If it's yeah, just yeah. a family, it's, it's still maintains. And you have it in a big yes. giant room. It still maintains the
1: wealth, but says something. Yep. That's great, Jeremy, yeah. And I think that is, that's an example, like you, you sidestep the cheat to be like, look, this is the best version of this idea, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, you
0: know, there's no, budget wouldn't improve the idea of that empty space, right? Like, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. That's, that's great. So yeah. uh, as a final question in this section, I want to pose a question to the two of you because I'm very much, um, I think I'm sort of an oddball um, in this sort of space because I'm actually in love with the, like some people say there's that old saying, uh i don't like writing but i love having written and i sort of love writing i absolutely love the craft of it i love you know sort of discovering that sort of thing so i want to know do you guys enjoy writing like what's your relationship with it uh
2: i i really I, i like both i like writing and having written Uh, I like it when writing's going well, I think, obviously. (laughs) But uh, I mean, for example, I just, I had a meeting with a a, a buddy of mine that owns like a little mini studio here in in Canada. And during the coffee meeting, like we were jamming on a thing. I went home and wrote like a six page outline over the weekend and sent it to me. He's like, holy shit, like this is ridiculously fast. I think we can make this. But it was also like, I don't, you know, I I was jazzed by, I was inspired. So for me, I'm like, I've gotten smart enough and I don't, I'm not one of those people that I'm like, I got to turn out three pages every day. I don't write every day. Mm -hmm. You know, I try to work on something every day and develop. So I I try to like do, cause I also, I also edit. I also direct. I do multiple things, right? I produce. So for me, I'm like, as long as I'm doing something creative every day or pushing something forward, it's okay if I don't write, right. But for me, I'm like, I, I know enough about writing now to know that sitting down every day for me to write is a bad choice yeah because it's better for it to percolate in my head and sit and ingest so that way when i do sit down to write i fly
1: yeah i mean i i feel like i went through a period where i was the person who answered the question i hate writing i'm happy having (laughs) written like i definitely i felt that way for many years that was one of the reasons honestly that also fueled my idea to sort of improv the feature it was my way out of that space i think and i think what i've now with perspective though I think I've actually come around to some of what Jeremy's saying, which is like, I think I realized, I think I was in a period where I just wasn't feeling excited enough by ideas. Mm. Um, and and I maybe was honestly trying to write things that weren't organically coming from me. Uh, right. And now that I feel like I'm back at this space where I haven't been writing as much, the pandemic obviously affected things, my kids were home on Zoom school. Um, and I now for the first time in a while feel a desire to like do more writing than I'm actually have been able to do and that's a new thing for me but I think it has taught me like yeah I think maybe I would just go you know I I want to acknowledge I agree I think there's so much like write every day I don't write every day um always love writing I don't always love writing (laughs) you know like like, it was a good (laughs) truth to put out in the world because like I think otherwise I do feel like it sometimes paints this picture of like how you should feel if you're really a writer you know um and by the way to your point some people do love it every day you know but yeah but now I'm now in a phase where now when I answer the question I'm like yeah like it is work for me. I don't all find it to be joy, but I, you know, in the way that when you do work that's meaningful or that like you like you like the process, I find it satisfying even in the moment. I do now. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think if I'm being honest with myself, I love writing the first full draft. Yeah, and I love and I love writing Ooh. the production draft where I'm like, oh, now I know this location is this, and yep. I know that, and every draft between sucks a so little. Literally- <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> because you know, now you're rearranging you're trying to because no, it's fixing now i'm like Egh. yeah so you're is, all, is all about discovery yep and playing and that last draft before you're heading production is like oh now here's the realities and now i can shape it to something that's going to be real and tangible where the yeah. stuff in the middle it almost feels like you could get lost in the weeds so fast
0: yes and then so different, different
2: notes and then you also yeah. you know, i mean and,
1: i find that that middle part like both in writing and Jeremy, you probably know this too as an editor like I found that both in writing and editing my feature film that I that after after we leave like I started to get terrified at the like butterfly effect of I take this one thing out here in scene three, oh my god, did I just screw up something forty five minutes later? Like like there's yep. definitely an aspect of that. You that
2: Watch it too, and you've read it too many times. You've watched yep. it too many times like you don't know like is this affecting someone else for the first time? Yeah, yeah, it's that's why you need that core of other people. Yep. focus stuff, and for me it's just like I just break it down to like my, th- my thematic statement or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it and I, I basically tattoo that somewhere on my body mm-hmm. or on, on this like <laughs> this is the fucking this thing, the thing. Yeah. everything and and sometimes that will change but then I, that's when you do a major rewrite and by the way right. that's
1: also a budget tip i think like as long as you stay true to that you can change your scenes to meet the budget if you just stay true to that you're usually okay right like say, yeah you need
2: a guy i like mean, that's why I be- I'm, a, I'm a hard believer in theme because I'm like, if, you, if if that's your guiding light and every decision flows that,
0: then you won't make a wrong decision. Fair enough. All right, so uh, before we go, I want to ask you uh, both, what are you guys uh, watching, consuming, and writing? I just, ref- I finished or refinished uh, Upload uh, on Amazon Prime. I really love that show. I don't think it gives enough props. It's one of the most imaginative shows um, that I've seen in quite some time. Um, and Robbie Amell is is super talented. Is no reason for someone who's that good looking to be that talented and that funny as an actor. I just don't feel like that's fair. Um, you know, it's not that I want anything bad to happen to him. I, I think he's probably a lovely person, but it's just it's one of those things where you're like, is this? There's he's is, a drama boy. I'm
2: buddies. I'm I I, I don't know him well, but I, I, I know his agent very well. I'm just
0: like, is, is it is it fair for him to be that good looking and that talented at the same time? I don't think it is. I, I just feel like he just got the, you know, the rest of her just sort of living in Robbie Amell's world. He's going to be a big star, <laughs> I think. Um, but I just, I finished that and I had to, I sort of switched gears as I sort of ramp up on the, these features that I'm wanting to do sort of back to back with each other. And I decided that uh, one is going to be done a lot faster than the other. So I sort of switched gears and decided to write that one. And now I'm in the weeds with the characters and I'm really enjoying them. Um, where before, I think it was just an idea. It came from a five minute like, short that I did. And now mm-hmm. I'm sort of expanding on it and I'm really, really enjoying the characters. Um, and just- it's a good feeling. Yeah, yeah, I'm just falling in love with them and sort of figuring out where they're going from. I'm looking forward to seeing where the story goes and doing something weird and inappropriate. Um, like, Yes. the Like, yeah, want to do that. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. I uh, got my new notebook in the, in the, from Amazon yesterday, my new screenwriting notebook. And so I just started crafting the hell out of it. And, and, and that's, that was me. That's been my week. Jeremy,
2: uh, what have I been watching? I'm finally catching up on the last season of Shameless, which is one of my all time favorite shows. Um, I'm I'm sad that it's almost I've got like two episodes left, and I'm heartbroken because I don't want to leave these characters. In this world! Uh, and then I'm watching, you know, all the HBO like Succession. I'm caught up on and Curb and all those things. My son and I are are going slowly going through Brooklyn Nine Nine <laughs> together, and I just started watching The Good Place with him.
0: Oh uh, yes.
2: Loves we're only in Love season one, show. but he's so like uh, as soon as um, is it Jay? Jay's the the um, he starts off as the is the as the like the monk um, what's his name anyway oh, oh john you uh john, you, no, john, you. yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. Like, as as went, the first time he talked to myself I was like what the I'm like you wait oh, I can't man. wait to get to the season finale with him of season one it's gonna blow fine oh, yeah. anyway so that's what I'm I'm watching a ton of, of for TV. And then um, I'm just like bouncing. This has been the year of post. I, 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 I mean, been, I shot two features this year. Wow. And I just shot a a, docu, a food docu-series that I hosted as well. So I'm, uh, uh, and, the, and that was the one of those weird when The broadcaster came back and gave us zero notes. They gave me one audio note. And I was like, "That's <laughs> you like this show?" Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but they loved it, so that was a weird thing. That's awesome. Uh, Chase so that, that dragon. Yeah, yeah, and now now it's just and then I'm in development on a, a musical, which nice. uh, we're going to do a workshop wow. of in the new year. And then uh, I just like I said, I just sent this pitch off to my buddy, and I think they're going to give us off green light to start writing. So I'm just waiting for feedback from them. So it's been good. It's been it's been a nice time, and I've been able to do it all from home mostly, which has been such a
1: gift. Yeah. All right, Aleem, take us home. So with my kids, I've been watching, rewatching actually for the second time this this uh, Netflix animated show, uh, Kipo and the Age of the Wonder Beasts, uh,
0: okay. which
1: I really recommend. It's like a bonkers post apocalyptic, <laughs> multi racial uh, fantasy show. Um, it is fantastic there are you know mutant talking uh, frogs there is you know this kind of awesome mixed-race girl protagonist uh humor so that's awesome um there's an oracle of of uh, funny goats um <laughs> and then uh i i've been also re-watching this just my wife and i um uh, i may destroy you you know i i in, my, in the last 10 Ooh, years i've not gone yes. back and re tv shows a lot like it's just so much new content but i just i, I found that that show was really sticking with me And I wanted to go back and really watch it again to think about how she wrote it and how she plotted it and made space for everything she did there. Um, I thought that was fantastic. And then a new show that I'm watching, I'm late to this party. It's a show called Patriot on Amazon. And it is this bonkers, like very gritty, visceral, like it's harshly violent spy show where the spy is also an amateur folk singer who sings like brilliantly funny folk songs as a form of self-therapy for the stuff that he does in his life it is a bonker show it's not perfect but i'm so loving it it's from like 2017 or something i, I never heard of it patriot an amazing cast like just every performer in it you're like wow and it, like this is an example of like the world has flipped my parents now watch more tv than i did when i was growing up i knew all the cool stuff and they were clueless and now they're like have you watched and they list, like, 15 shows <laughs> I haven't watched. Um, and they recommended this one, and it's amazing. Um, so, Patriot and Amazon, definitely, you know, everyone knows I made Destroy You. It's a great show, but Patriot, check it out. It's pretty great.
0: All righty. Uh, this week's resource uh, is the Film Courage uh, interview with Aleem. Uh, that, for me, that, uh, you know, of all the interviews with you that uh, I've watched and listened to, that one was just sort of amazing. I'm a big fan of Film Courage anyway, but that one was super, super great. And I feel like there's a lot to be gleaned from that interview. So I will put that in the show notes. Then that is our show. Uh, Screenwriting from the Trenches can currently be found on Anchor, Apple, Google, and Spotify podcasts, as well as KevinLmartin.com. Since we are a new podcast, we appreciate it if you dropped us a like or rate us five stars and whatever platform you patronize because you know algorithms uh for questions that i can and will answer on the show uh my email is rob at bespectacledmofo.com. you can find me on twitter at bespectacle uh jeremy you are also on twitter i am uh i believe it's is it it's either
2: i'm I, my instagram and my twitter are messed up so one it's either jeremy lalonde or lalonde jeremy
0: based on which one it is well it, it will be in I the show the,
2: notes. i got the pretty little uh blue
0: check mark so that's me yeah uh alim uh, you're also on uh twitter and I, instagram I, yeah
1: i'm infrequently on twitter at just at alim i'm on instagram a little more often and uh i write a newsletter about diversity in sci-fi and genre films that uh people can find at my website alim
0: On oh now the website will also be linked in the show notes um all of these things as well as my youtube series uh how to make a movie for a thousand dollars will all be linked Thanks so much for listening. And we hope that you will continue to do so. Now stop procrastinating because those pages aren't going to write themselves, folks. Thanks for listening. Jeremy, thank you for co-hosting. And Aleem, so nice to finally make your acquaintance. Awesome to be here. Thank you.